in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, John Flack, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. Today, I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me is my beautiful, wonderful wife, Mary Guest. Hi, everybody. And also here to say hello is Mary's good friend from the University of Tennessee, her roommate and good friend, Lisa Aruchevich. Good job. (laughs) Hey, everybody. That was on the first try. (laughs) Yes, the first try. Wink, wink. (laughs) So, Lisa, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you guys? I'm doing great. And I want to see if you can answer some very difficult questions. Not most people can't answer these. We'll see if you're okay. up to the task. Sure. All right. What is your favorite song used in a movie and what did it do for the movie? So when I was thinking about this, the song that popped into my head was uh, from Little Miss Sunshine the closing one of the closing scenes super freak by rick james <laughs> yeah and i i think that that whole last set piece just really gels the movie together and you don't you're not expecting it and you know something bad is going to happen but you have no idea what and it just works perfectly I love that choice. (laughs) So what is a favorite film moment that you have from when you and your husband, Armin, first started maybe watching movies together? Maybe it was an early date or a movie that just connected with you guys early on in your relationship? Early on when we started dating, I did not know that my husband does not like horror movies. So I drug him to see (laughs) different horror movies. But one of the first ones that we watched (laughs) together... What he was just too afraid to tell me that he didn't like them. <laughs> oh, that's really but, sweet. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, we watched uh, Cabin in the Woods, the Joss Whedon remake, and uh, you know it's really funny. And I'm and especially towards the end of the movie where a lot of people are dying and there's all these horror movie tropes that are getting kind of eviscerated. I'm just I was cracking up in the movie theater and he's just looking over at me kind of horrified. <laughs> like, you're laughing at people and they're dying. Like, but don't you understand? Like, they're making fun of all these different movies. It's hilarious. <laughs> and, you know, he st- stuck with me after that, even though he knew I was a weirdo. So it worked out. <laughs> It just reminds me of the Austin Powers. Like, you don't get it, do you, Scott? <laughs> yes, just that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so today we're doing The Wizard of Oz, and in this movie we have a very scary character, the Wicked Witch of the West, 
uh, in my mind, one of the scariest characters of all of movies. But what, for you, is the scariest character that you have seen in a movie? That would be Pennywise the Clown from It. Mm. Tim Curry, Pennywise, or Bill Skarsgård, Pennywise? Um, Tim Curry, because I saw it when I was five years old. Whoa. And... That's yeah, a little my... young to see that movie, probably. <laughs> well, I didn't make it through the movie. Oh. I've only ever made it through the, first scene? the part. Pretty much the part where the little boy, you know, they all float down here and, yeah. you know, the that scene. As far as I would make it at five years old, I don't know. Wow. I mean, uh, yeah, Tim three... Curry's scary. I can't imagine seeing him at five. It's a two-part, three-hour-long uh, marathon, so there's a lot more after that. But, yes, I... Oh, I've tried to watch more of it and I can't and it's I have a lifelong fear of clowns from that movie I so bet. yeah <laughs> no bozo show for you then no <laughs> so what is the last movie you've seen so the last movie I saw was a little indie movie called Anna and the Apocalypse um, which I had actually saw in the movie theater in Knoxville when it first came out as very limited release. For those of you that aren't familiar, it's a zombie musical. And it's set at Christmas time and also it's British. So that's pretty much every type of movie I like rolled all up into one. And it's a fantastic movie. That sounds like a lot of fun. I think we'll have to see that. And so tell the people at home real quick, uh, you're from Knoxville, Tennessee, and what you do for work, just to get to know you a little better. Yeah, um, I'm a paralegal for a legal department for a cable television programmer. So she's in the business? Yes, so. sort of. I do the legal stuff, so not the fun stuff. It's, somebody's got to do it. Yeah. At this point, I want to reintroduce the movie. It's Wizard of Oz. This movie comes out in 1939. It grosses $3 million. That doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot for the time. However, it takes several years for it to recoup its money uh, from... It's a very high-cost movie. It places only at ninth in the box office in 1939. That's a bit of a surprise. It comes uh, in ahead of uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and uh, sorry, it placed behind the Hunchback of Notre Dame and it placed ahead of Gunga Den. Uh, the number one movie that year, if you're wondering, in 1939 was Gone with the Wind and it made a lot more money. Uh, and IMDb gives this an 8.0. So the critics of Rotten Tomatoes give this 98% and the audience likes it as well at 89%. The Academy Awards gave this three Oscar winners and six nominations. It won for Best Original Score, Best Original Song for Over the Rainbow. Academy Juvenile Award goes to Judy Garland. That's a award for somebody uh, who's a minor. Uh, it's not an award they still have around, I don't believe. Uh, the Oscar uh, nominated for Best Picture, Best Cinematography, and Outstanding Production. Uh, it did not win those, however. AFI comes to its defense, though, and they rank this the number six movie on the top 100 movies of all times. They rate it the number 43 movie on the top 100 thrills. Uh, top 100 heroes and villains, The Wicked Witch of the Wist, is number four villain of all time. The 100 Years of Songs and Movies, Somewhere Over the Rainbow is number one. Ding Dong the, uh, Ding Dong the Witch is Dead is 82. Uh, and The Greatest Musicals Countdown, they gave it number three. And they also ranked it the number one greatest fantasy film of all time. There's also some quotes, but we'll get to those later in the movie as well. Lisa, 
what what are your experiences with Wizard of Oz? I'm assuming you've seen this one before, but what was your first time seeing it, and how long had it been since you last saw it? What were your expectations coming in? I've probably seen this movie before I can even remember because it was one of my mother's favorite movies. And so I've been probably watching this movie since I was a little baby. Going into it, you know, I know I love the movie, so I was expecting to enjoy it again, and and I did. What were your expectations coming back to it now? Because how long had it been since you've seen it? So, yeah, actually, I hadn't when I was thinking about it, I hadn't actually watched it in a very long time. I probably hadn't watched it since college, even though I have it on DVD. I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it, especially trying to think about it critically. But I really feel like it holds up very well. And and even the effects, I was actually surprised at how good the effects still look to me. It does look good. Mm -hmm. Mary, what were your expectations coming into this one in your background on this like lisa i remember this movie always being around i think my sister and i wore out at least three vhs's of this (laughs) when we were kids uh so it was definitely something that we were you know watching probably hundreds of times and i think that probably had been at least 20 years since I'd seen it, but it felt exactly the same as it did as a kid. I don't feel like it, you know, I remembered all the words to all the songs and that kind of time gap, you know, it just didn't feel like there had been a gap at all. Um, And it holds up just as much as I thought it would. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't been away from it quite that long. I want to say that I saw it late in high school. I don't think I saw it through college. So it's been a good 15 years for me since I had seen it. So I really enjoyed coming back to it, and I found myself asking, why have I been away from it for so long? Because it's every bit as magical as I thought it was, and uh, probably even more. If anything, I might have started to fade from my memory and start to question, is it really that great? And the answer is yes, it is. This is the part of the show, though, where i got to warn you. If you haven't seen The Wizard of Oz, first of all, I'm wondering how long you've been on planet Earth. (laughs) But if you haven't seen The Wizard of Oz, by all means, stop this episode. Go watch it. Come back and finish the episode because we're going to get into some spoilers after this. Ladies, please calm yourselves. This is the Scottish sensation, Sean Connery. You probably know me as 007 or as People's Magazine's 1989 Sexiest Man Alive. Honestly, they call each year and they try and give it to me again and again. But I decline and tell them. Give somebody else a chance to win it. And I'm not entertaining the ladies. I listen to my favorite podcast, The Retro Movie Roundtable. If you want to be awesome like I am, give The Retro Movie Roundtable a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. Tell movie-loving friends to listen. Like the show on Facebook. Email John and Russell at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. I've won many awards, but the shining moment of my career was hearing John and Russell praise my acting performances on Retro Movie Roundtable. I think you'll love the show as much as the ladies love me. All right. Once again, we're going to get into spoiling this movie. So if you haven't seen The Wizard of Oz, you may want to pause this and step away and come back. But for those of you who need a refresher, Lisa is going to remind you what happened in The Wizard of Oz. Lisa? Yes, so we open in a sepia-toned Kansas to see Dorothy and her dog Toto racing back to their farmhouse 
because Toto caused trouble with the wicked Elvira Gulch. But at home, Dorothy just gets in the way, so Auntie M eventually asks Dorothy to find a place where she won't get into any trouble. Cue the first song, the iconic Over the Rainbow. Elvira Gulch shows up at the farmhouse with an order from the sheriff to allow her to take Toto away to be destroyed as Toto bit her on the ankle. Elvira Gulch rides away with Toto in a basket, but Toto escapes and runs back to Dorothy. Dorothy is overjoyed to have Toto back, but realizes that in order to keep Toto safe, they will have to run away. As she is running away, Dorothy stumbles upon the mysterious Professor Marvel and his wagon and stops to talk to him. Professor Marvel is a quote-unquote psychic who figures out that Dorothy has run away from home and he manipulates her into returning home. On her way home, a tornado blows in. Dorothy ends up in the farmhouse by herself, where she takes a nasty blow to the head from a window and is knocked out. The house is sucked up into a a tornado, and Dorothy wakes up while the house is still in the middle of the tornado. The house then falls to the ground. Dorothy makes her way outside and opens the door into a Technicolor dream world, Oz, and more specifically, Munchkinland. A bubble comes down, and Glinda the Good Witch of the North appears. Glinda informs Dorothy that she is a murderer, having killed the Wicked Witch of the East by dropping a house on her. (laughs) Ding dong, the Wicked Witch is dead. The merriment is interrupted by the Wicked Witch of the West. When the Wicked Witch of the West goes to take the ruby slippers from her dead sister's feet, they disappear and reappear on Dorothy's feet. The Wicked Witch threatens Dorothy, but leaves without doing anything. Glinda warns Dorothy that she should get out of Oz and that the only person who can help her is the Wizard of Oz who lives in the Emerald City. Glinda tells Dorothy she can find the Emerald City by following the Yellow Brick Road, then pieces out before Dorothy can ask any follow-up questions. Dorothy makes her way down the Yellow Brick Road, eventually coming to a crossroads and a talking scarecrow who doesn't have any brains. He asks if he can come with her to meet the wizard and ask for some brains. And they're off to meet the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Dorothy and the Scarecrow next stumble across a rusted tin man who doesn't have a heart. They invite the tin man to come with them to ask the wizard for a heart. The Wicked Witch shows up to threaten everyone once again, but undeterred, they set off for the Emerald City. They make it to a dark, scary part of the forest where it looks like they might meet some wild animals. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And lo and behold, they do meet a lion who tries to intimidate them but this is a cowardly lion who doesn't have any courage. They invite the lion to go with them to see the wizard and ask for courage. Once they make it inside the Emerald City, the guard informs them that the wizard has told them to go away, but Dorothy starts crying and the guard is so moved that he lets them all in to meet the wizard. The terrifying giant head that is the Wizard of Oz says that he will help them, but they must do a little favor for him to prove they are worthy. They must bring him the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. Cut to our heroes in the haunted forest outside of the witch's castle. The Wicked Witch sends an army of winged monkeys to grab Dorothy and Toto and bring them to her. Once the Wicked Witch has Dorothy and Toto, she tries to get Dorothy to give her the ruby slippers in exchange for Toto. But the ruby slippers won't come off and cannot be taken off unless Dorothy is dead. Toto escapes again. The Wicked Witch locks Dorothy up while she tries to figure out how to kill her. Toto makes it back to the Scarecrow, Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion and does his best lassie to get them to follow him back to the witch's castle. Once at the castle, they sneak in and break Dorothy out of the room, but aren't able to get away without being cornered by the witch. The witch sets her broomstick on fire and the Scarecrow. 
Dorothy grabs a very convenient bucket of water to douse the scarecrow and also douses the witch who melts and dies. Dorothy is a murderer once more and the witch's guards celebrate and gladly give them the broomstick. They all go back to the wizard. The wizard, instead of immediately granting their wishes, tells them to come back tomorrow. They are not happy and Toto goes running and tugs on a curtain off to the side, which reveals an old man who is the actual wizard and an actual fraud. But luckily for our heroes, the Scarecrow, Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion had what they desired all along. No help from the wizard is needed. The wizard then promises to take Dorothy with him back to Kansas in his hot air balloon. Once the wizard, Dorothy, and Toto are in the balloon and ready to go, Toto runs off again and Dorothy follows. The balloon accidentally sets off and the wizard leaves without her. Glinda waltzes in in her bubble and tells Dorothy that she has the power to go home all along. All she needs to do is click her heels together and say, there's no place like home. Dorothy wakes up in her bedroom, surrounded by her family, the farmhands, and even Professor Marvel. It was all a dream, but it's okay because she's home and she'll never, ever leave home again. Well done. Very thorough. I feel like I just watched it again. <laughs> so, Mary, what do you think about the uh, story of this one? It's, uh, it's, it's a fantasy, but it's also you know, grounded in reality at the beginning. I love the storytelling. I love how um, the plot moves forward as she eats three of her friends, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and and the Lion, as the plot moves forward. Um, Yeah, I think it's it's simple, but just classic. Lisa, do you know much about the Oz book series on this one? So, I I have read The Wizard of Oz. I think I've I've maybe read one or two of the other ones. It, it's it's slightly different. Um, and actually, when I was doing some research, I was reminded that in the book, it's not a dream. That was actually included for the movie. That was something the studio wanted. So it's a little bit of a different take when it's all a dream. Yeah, they didn't feel like people would relate to... A fantasy because they apparently weren't very profitable at the time so they felt like in order to deal with their very sophisticated audiences they needed to at least you know give them some dismissal by saying like yeah it's a dream anything can happen in a dream um, yeah it also kind of cuts dorothy's power a little bit um because she never did any of the cool things that she you know did and you know it was all a dream so she didn't actually do anything Whereas in, you know, the book, she actually did, like, kill the witches and, and did all this other cool stuff. I didn't realize before we got into this, uh, studying for this podcast, that uh, there was a silent movie in 1925 that was The Wizard of Oz. It is even less faithful to the book content. Also missing the magic and the fact that there's this fantasy world as well. So uh, I don't know why they were so tempted to pull out the magic out of this magical story, but they really seemed adamant on doing so. Yeah, yeah, it does seem a little bit like it diminishes uh, her experiences when, at the end, everyone's telling her it was just a dream because she's been un- knocked unconscious. So I think that it would change it a lot. Yeah, um, if they if they had done it more true to the book. Yeah, and also at the end, she's also saying, "I'll never leave home again." So. That's another thing that was added into the movie that I I was a little uncomfortable with that when I started thinking about it. 
You mean too agoraphobic? I mean, they were kind of putting her in her place. Ah. Like a, a woman's place is in the home and she'll never, you know, she should never leave home again. Ah, that's a good point. And that, that is something that may change your perception with how you watch it because it's not 1939 anymore. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's a good point because it's, um, I always took it to mean, oh, she's not going to just run away again, but it actually would have meant something very different if this had been the true fantasy that we were talking about. That's an interesting modern way of, uh, you know, critically assessing it. So even in, even in a masterpiece, there's sometimes things don't age the same. So that's an, that's a very good point. And another element of these books that's worth mentioning that they've not really been done true to the book per se, because mm-hmm. in, in Frank Baum's novels, they're considerably more gruesome. A lot of children's books yeah. uh, from a long time ago have a lot more gruesome content in it. So it's my understanding there's tiger-bear hybrids, wolves that come after them, bees, mm-hmm. and the tin man uses his axe to chop off the head off of a wildcat and wolves that are coming after them. Uh, you know, bad, worse things happen to the lion and the scarecrow in the book. And uh, it's just interesting. It's not... Uh, you know, they uh, also are even tasked with killing the Wicked Witch of the West, not simply retrieving her broomstick. So uh, it's interesting how this is already a It's like a version. sugar-coated version. It is. Well, yes. I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. sure how for kids some of those things are, to be honest with you. But I will say, and in the book, one thing I do remember is there's also a good Witch of the South. And there's a whole section that takes place in the South part of Oz. And I don't remember any details of it, but there's a whole storyline that's cut out that makes sense because i always wondered where the fourth witch was (laughs) i was gonna save this for later but since we're on it now i mean it's interesting glenda is the merger of two characters and they initially even wrote the other character for the good witch of the south into it but then Mm -hmm. when they had to trim things down and condense things and write the movie uh the good witch of the south fell out and what happens is in the book apparently after they go to the emerald city they come back the wizard flies away they go to the wicked witch, sorry, the good witch of the south to ask how to get home. And she's the one who knows how to use the ruby slippers. So if there's an inconsistency there and Glenda's like, take the slippers with you. They must do something powerful. But then at the end, Glenda's like, well, click them together. You know how to get home. That might be a slight inconsistency when you really look at it. And the reason for that is it's because there's two different witches. One witch who's older doesn't know what to do with them. And the pretty younger witch from the south does know what to do with them. So uh, it's something that I never stopped her to think about, but uh, it actually shows that that inconsistency does make sense when you know why it's that way. Mary, do you want to give us a walk down through the cast? Sure. The lovely Julie Garland plays Dorothy Gale. Frank Morgan plays a number of roles. He plays Professor Marvel, the Wizard of Oz, the gatekeeper at the Emerald City, the carriage driver at the Emerald City, and the guard. Ray Bolger plays Hunk and the Scarecrow. Bert Lahr plays Zeke and the Cowardly Lion. Jack Haley plays Hickory and the Tin Man. Billy Burke plays the Good Witch Glinda. Margaret Hamilton plays Miss Gulch and the Wicked Witch of the West. Charlie Grapewin plays Uncle Henry. Clara Blandick plays Auntie M. And Terry, the dog, plays Toto. 
So good cast. And one thing we didn't mention before, though, is I like the dream sequence, actually, because the dream sequence parallels characters that are from the farm. Uh, mm-hmm. The characters of Hunk, Zeke, and Hickory are reflected, and there's even, like, allusions to what they will be there. They mention having a brain or having courage mm-hmm. or, you know, having a heart. And so then they go into Oz. Those characters are played by the same actors, and those traits of the real world characters show through and that really does speak to it reinforces the illusion of the dream sequence so i really liked that and then also uh professor marvel plays a whole slew of characters and i never noticed that until now i actually noticed the same thing when i was watching it this time i did not realize how many characters he played and they're so and they're all different he does a really great job with them. I particularly like the guard at the Emerald uh, City. Like the, the like the guy who popped yeah. out of the circular <laughs> door is like, who is it? Yeah. I, I like bust my buttons. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't you say so? <laughs> so that's that's my favorite of the Frank Morgan characters, but this guy's pretty talented to, to do this much and somehow, like I said, I never absorbed that this is all the same guy. Uh, Merwin Leroy, who is the producer of this movie, always said that he was always interested in casting Judy Garland to play Dorothy. However, there are other stories that suggest in pre-production there was heavy pressure from the studios to cast Shirley Temple as Dorothy. She was the hot child name of the era, and so getting her in the movie would have put more butts in seats in theory. But uh, there was... Roger Edens felt like the role needed to be older, to have a different voice. And Freed as well, uh, who is one of the music minds and one of the creative forces behind this, with along with Marvin Leroy, they felt that it needed an older actor to be able to sing the parts that it needed. And so Judy Garland is actually around the age of 16 when she records this, and she uh, plays younger than she is. So something that I always kind of thought about as a kid, uh, you know, when you're so much younger, like, why is this full grown woman playing a child? But um, (laughs) it's funny now that I'm older, you start to see like, it's like, she's not a totally full grown woman. But on the other hand, she's a good bit older than she plays. So Lisa, have you ever noticed or how does that go down with her being that age? Um, I never had a problem with it. I mean, it is slightly older than the character in the book, but I, I think, you know, she's not full grown even when she's you know judy garland wasn't full grown then i mean she wasn't 18 or you know 30 like most (laughs) most uh hollywood actors these days playing high schoolers so i think it works fine i am very glad they did not go with shirley temple because i always hated shirley temple in her movies and my mom would make me watch them so every time i thought about shirley temple playing the role in wizard of oz i was very thankful that didn't happen Yeah, I agree with you. I think it was really important to get someone with much more vocal sophistication Mm -hmm. for this role. I think it's important to mention for casting that uh, Ray Bolger, who plays the Scarecrow, was originally cast as the Tin Man. He, I guess he and his wife made a concerted effort to say, no, that's not the right role for him. His style, his, his sort of unique 
very loose-limbed style of dancing was much more appropriate for the Scarecrow character. So um, being very passionate about that, he did get the part of the Scarecrow. Um, and that was much to his benefit because the original casting for the Tin Man was Buddy Ebsen who became very ill because of breathing in aluminum powder makeup that he had to wear to be the Tin Man. It actually um, caused him some very serious breathing problems, um, and he almost, uh, you know, from what stories are saying, he he was in a very serious medical situation because of it. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there was a second guy who cast Jack Haley, who ended up being the Tin Man in the movie, and they did change the makeup for him into an aluminum paste so that he wasn't breathing the aluminum dust. Even that was too much for him, though, because he got infected eyes from it. So, yeah, that's right. The the eventually the um, makeup got into his eye, so he actually had to be offset for a couple of weeks while that uh, while that healed. But in the end, don't you think this works out well? I mean, can you imagine Lisa anybody other than uh, Haley being the Ten Man? And can you? I can't even imagine Ray Bulger's talents going to waste not being the Scarecrow. Yeah, I was gonna say that I. I loved Ray Bulger as the Scarecrow, and that was one of the things that struck me when I was watching it this uh, for this podcast, was how perfect he is dancing as the Scarecrow. You know, his loose style, I mean, you really believed he didn't have bones, it was just straw. And I actually watched the extended dance sequence that was cut from the movie, and he's so fantastic in it. I could watch him dancing forever. He was actually my favorite dancing sequence in the movie. It's kind of the perfect role for him mm-hmm. to be able to use his talents. So I think it worked out for the best mm-hmm. for him. Unfortunate what happened to Buddy Ebsen, though, because I'm sure that that would have been such a heartbreaker to been cast as the Tin Man and then not be able to do it. We talked about Frank Morgan playing all these multiple roles. It's interesting. I don't know if either of you are familiar with the comedian W.C. Fields. He's very funny. Uh, he was actually offered the role that Frank Morgan did playing all of the Oz and uh, the Emerald City Guards and all these various roles. He ended up not getting it because of getting into contracts and fees and stuff like that. But Morgan's a pretty good runner-up. But I- I'll let you know, W.C. Fields, pretty funny guy and would have done a good job at this as well. So hmm. uh, just an interesting alternate casting there. Uh, he's kind of like a... Um, Laurel and Hardy or, you know, kind of, uh, I won't go, he's not as slapsticky as the Three Stooges, but, uh, you know, he's an early comedian, pretty funny guy. We should talk about the soundtrack a little bit. Lisa, was there anything else about the cast you wanted to mention? No, I don't think so. Oh, there's one more thing that I I did want to mention. Uh, Gail Sondergaard was actually originally cast to play the Wicked Witch of the West. If you're familiar with Gail Sondergaard, she's actually a very pretty woman. And she was not happy because the role was originally cast to have a pretty witch like, uh, say, Sleeping Beauty. And instead, things started to change where they became a very scary green witch with a long chin and stuff like that. And she said, "Uh, I'm out. I'm I'm not going to play an ugly witch. And so... (laughs) Uh, Margaret Hamilton, who's the perfect witch of the West, uh, comes in and nails it. Yeah. And who do we probably, who are we more likely to know now the name of? Probably Margaret Hamilton. Mm -hmm. It's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But she wasn't going to look bad. (laughs) Gail Sondergaard. Lisa, what do we think about the music on this? Because this is indeed not just a fantasy movie, not just a family movie, but a uh, a musical movie. Well, it really 
you know, it has so many iconic songs in it that people are still, I mean, people still sing Over the Rainbow constantly, which tell, I mean, think about that. How many songs are we singing from 1939 today? Not many. I don't know what the statistics are, but it seems like it has to be one of the most known or most popular songs in U.S. history. Because most people know at least part of that song. From 1939, you don't go around singing Me and My Knickerbockers? <laughs> well, of course No appreciation for great music. <laughs> that is a really important thing to bring up because um, when we were watching some of the documentary stuff on this... The studio kept wanting to remove Over the Rainbow. They thought that it it was too slow. Uh They thought that it didn't make sense for the lead to be singing an epic song in a, you know, in a barnyard area. There were so many reasons they fought to keep it out. And Russell, did you say it was Freed who insisted that the song stay in and fought really hard for the song to stay in? That's right. Arthur Freed. And Arthur Freed is a big creative force behind this. He's the one who basically said, we got to do this right. We got to make it a musical. He started to conceive of the music. So he's the musical mastermind behind this. He goes and hires uh, Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg to compose and write the lyrics respectively. So he's a big, big part of the creation of this movie. And he actually went and got Merwin Leroy to help him produce the movie because it was such a big production and he needed somebody who was in the business to help him do this. But Arthur Freed has a lot to do with the music in this, and you're right. He was the one who said, Over the Rainbow's got to be in there. Full disclosure, when I was a kid, I kind of got bored during that song. So You just want to get to I the color, to, right? I, I, was, I was hanging in there. Uh, you know, the tornado brought me back. It's into actually it later, not a very long song, Russell. It's really not, but three-year-old me's attention span... Uh, was was pushed. Now I got into the movie, and it's funny. Like I said on other subsequent watches, you you learn to love the whole thing, and it's one of those things where somewhere over the rainbow, I think I learned. I, I think I came back to it in high school, and I remember going like, "Wow, that's a really good song." And it took me that long. <laughs> I had to go away from it and come back to it. Well, I'll tell you what song always uh, I always wanted to skip through, and that was the Cowardly Lion song when they're in the Emerald City. If I were king of the forest, <laughs> Russell's yes, eyes just right? got really oh, big. Go on, <laughs> because yeah, it's so it, it stops everything and it's so boring and it doesn't. I I really, if I could do anything, I would cut that song out and I would add in the song that they cut out, the Jitterbug, which I actually enjoy. You can still hear the audio track. the The footage has been lost, but the Jitterbug is fun. And it would have been a fun dance. If I were King of the Forest, just slow. I am with everything you said. All of those things. <laughs> because I remember sitting there, like, we were watching it. It's just like, why is he talking about being king now? Like, I mean, shouldn't they all go around and talk about, like, I still don't have a heart. Yeah. Update. Why are we I still don't him? have a brain. <laughs> yeah, it's like, 
It, it's almost like he was contracted to be able to have, uh, you know, another musical number just to showcase his vocal abilities. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how this missed the cutting block and we said, we, no, we've got to get rid of the Wicked Witch of the South. Or, the ah, Good Witch of the South. Yeah. So. And they, you know, cut out that whole extended sequence for the Scarecrow, which I think was fantastic. They cut out the Jitterbug. And you can see these things on YouTube, I, I, by the way, too. So if you're at home and you want to hear the Jitterbug... Mm-hmm. Or if you want to see the extended uh, Scarecrow dance, Mary pulled this one up for me and showed it to me as well. Uh, I don't think they're too long. And I do remember on one of these VHSs that doesn't exist anymore that we had, there was um, a video of the Jitterbug. And I haven't looked for yeah. this on YouTube. Maybe it's there. But it was not on set. It was like just in a white room with the trees and the actors. Okay. So it was a little bit kind of surreal yeah. almost like an art film not necessarily what you would have seen in the movie and i think if i remember correctly that might have actually been don't quote me on this but buddy Epson in that version of it yeah so i i have the dvd and it has one of the making of because they did so many making of documentaries but it has one of the ones it was done i think in like 1990 and it has angela lansbury Um, narrating the making of documentary and so they show there's some home video footage that one of the people working on the film took of them and it's kind of creepy because it's kind of they're off in the trees and so they're kind of looking through the trees at them rehearsing the the dance but it, it it's interesting i liked it so this number, to clarify where this would have fit into the movie is when the wicked witch of the west sends her flying monkeys after Dorothy it's, and her three companions. So it's actually it's right before it's that. It's right before that. And actually there's still a reference to it when the Wicked Witch is sending the winged monkeys, she says something about she's sending something to to wear them out or uh tire them out or something like that. And that's a reference to the jitterbug, which ends up getting cut. Yeah, it's interesting how that line stays in there. I, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a good. That, that's definitely an interesting point. I never got caught on that because there's a lot of action going on. But when you, you're right. When you focus on that sentence, it no longer makes sense. Yeah. So. Um, one thing that I kind of was always taken with lyrically was some of the creative lyrics, and one of the lines that I want to point out is the cowardly lion when he's singing his song about not having nerve. He he says, but if I could show my prowess, be a lion, not a malice. <laughs> and, and there's other instances, but that's the one that comes to mind the most and of a mispronunciation in order to create a rhyme. And I'm pretty sure that I went several years of my life not knowing what a malice was. <laughs> But I do really like that just really fun approach to lyrics that just carries through the whole movie. Yes. And so as we transition into talking about how this movie got made a little bit, we did mention how Arthur Freed was kind of the, the guy who had the vision and saw that this needed to have the music that it had in there. And it's interesting. A lot of the plot points and some of the musical ideas that he had really stayed through to the end. So even as he brought in the others to work with him, uh, that vision of his really carried through. Mervyn Leroy, the producer, actually was a director at the time. And so he wanted to direct this himself, but it was just too big of a project. And so 
he ends up going and getting a director to do this. But here's where it gets interesting. This movie has five different directors. I don't know if you caught on to this. And it's really interesting. So the original director is Norman Taurig. Uh, he only was on for a few early Technicolor tests. Then Richard Thorpe replaces him. But he's only there for nine days. And his <laughs> I know. So it's just not working. And so the producer, Myron Leroy, comes in and says, this is this is bad. We're not going to do this. And that also uh, coincides with uh, Epson's Tin Man incident where he was hospitalized with the aluminum powder makeup. And so they get a new Tin Man. They get a new director. So they're on their third director already. And George Kukator uh, comes in. And he's only there for a short period of time. But he's one of the ones who fixes a lot of problems. Mary, do you want to talk about some of the changes that he made with Dorothy's character? Sure. I um, I think that he made some really good direction decisions here because kind of tying back into the they wanted Shirley Temple. They had um, they had Judy Garland in a blonde wig. They had her in really sort of comical makeup to make her look more like a little girl. Her wardrobe was different. I think they really made a smart choice by just allowing Judy Garland to look like herself and, you know, getting a much, you know, more simple look. And she really ends up being kind of a classic image that we all remember. So I think that that was a really important moment. I don't think that role would have come off the same way if they had not changed her look. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was not so uncommon back then to young down uh, women actors to be more childlike it usually comes off, at least in today's times, as being corny. I don't know if you've seen a movie like this, Lisa. I Probably, but they don't stick with you. And there's a reason mm-hmm. for that. And so George uh, Cukor is only there for a very short period of time. He goes on to make some other movies. So then the studio puts Victor Fleming in charge, and he's there. And they put him in charge because they figured he was able to handle a troubled production. It was running over budget. It was getting away from them, and he directed every kind of movie and been in every kind of uh, project. And uh, even though he really didn't want to take this, it wasn't going that well. He ultimately took it because he had two little girls, and he wanted to do something for them one day that would show them all the good that there was in the world. Lastly, Mar- uh, producer Marvin Leroy actually directed some of the transitional scenes because as it's changing directors in and out. Also, the movie finishes up with King Vidor. It's a wild name. Uh, he is assigned to the film when Victor Fleming leaves to work on Gone with the Wind because they're having trouble on that too. He seems to be the director who comes in to fix things. So Vidor actually finishes up the production and Fleming is the only one who actually has his name on it. So Lisa, we've got five different directors. That normally sounds like the recipe for a horrible disaster. Uh, what? Did, how does this work? Well, a lot of them weren't on there for very long, so... I think they didn't have too much of a hand in it. So a lot of it was Victor Fleming. I think I was reading that King Vidor, the last director, he filmed the Over the Rainbow sequence and some of the stuff in Kansas. I'm guessing that Victor Fleming did a lot of the stuff in Oz. I don't know. It it worked out because the the two looks, I mean, Kansas versus Oz are very, very different. And they're meant to be different. So I think it works. I don't know, when you say switch directors, I, my mind goes to like the new Justice League movie yeah. where it was uh, Zack Snyder and then it turned into Joss Whedon and then yeah. turned into a bad movie. <laughs> well, you started with Zack Snyder, so it was going to be bad. 
<laughs> so I think there was an interesting thing. We were talking about things that they also cut out when we were talking about the jitterbug and we were talking mm-hmm. about the other witch. Uh, they made, this is, I think is a smart content change. When she wakes up from her dream, Hunk, who plays the scarecrow, his equivalent is in theory about to go off to college because he's going to have a brain. And uh, he asks Dorothy to write him while she's away and implying that they're going to have a kindled relationship together. Ugh. And, uh, yeah, see, you didn't like that. No. I didn't catch that. <laughs> they didn't do this because it was a bad idea. So, um, also, he looks way older than college age in the uh, movie. Yeah. <laughs> it was the 30s. They all, uh, they all smoked and they all. It was the depression. Oh. Yeah, that. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't do that. I mean, one of the 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 theories that I read when I was researching this was, and this comes from them creating this whole dream thing for the movie, is that the reason you don't see Auntie M or Uncle Henry in the in Oz is, and you only see these male characters that aren't family members, is because it's her sexual awakening, and so I guess that interesting take. I, I thought it was. I, I can see that. I, I can see it, but it it's super creepy because they're all so much older than her. And I think that's how things were in nineteen thirty nine. I could yeah. be wrong, but yeah. I mean I guess I guess you could in theory have a guy who's considerably older dating a sixteen year old girl in nineteen thirty nine. Yeah, and I guess in her small sort of world in Kansas, in Kansas she's probably the only men she's ever met. Mm, that's true. Yeah. That's true. It it, it does not age well that's for sure well again they didn't put this in the movie so it uh, it went the way of the jitterbug and it got <laughs> that, that brings me to a question that i've kind of it's kind of been bothering me for a while all of the characters she encounters in oz are people from the real world except glinda mm-hmm. munchkins well they're i mean but glinda's a more major role yeah. So the individual, you know, characters that we know the names of, she's the only one who doesn't have a real life counterpart. Would you like to for her to have been like the nice neighbor? I, d- I don't know. I just I just can't figure that out in my mind. Yeah. What is the significance of Glinda? And I kind of at one point, you know, clearly Dorothy's parents are not around. And I kind of wondered, you know, if if Glinda is her mother. Mm-hmm. You know, if we if we maybe at some point got to see a picture of I, I don't so. know, maybe my mind is trying to stretch something yeah. that's not there. That's that's, that's yeah. a bit of a stretch. Well, I actually I actually noticed the Glinda thing as well when I was watching it this time. Not that I ever picked on it up on it before, but I was like, wait, she doesn't have an analog. That's that's strange. It is. So, what do you think about the look of Oz, Lisa? Like once she steps into. The magical world of Oz. What do you think about, I mean, Munchkinland, the Dark Forest, the Field of Poppies, Emerald City? I mean, how's this movie look to you? It looks fantastic. It it still is. And I think what makes it look better is those bookends at, you know, at the front and end of the movie with the sepia-toned Kansas. Because then when you open the door onto Oz, it just pops. And that contrast really helps. It does. And I didn't see it coming. I remember being a kid. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I saw this was at my grandmother's house and my mom put it on TV. 
I don't know. They were doing other things. Uh, and uh, I remember thinking, oh, this is a black and white movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's sad. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see where this goes. I had this, And it turned into color. I had the same experience as a kid because my parents would turn on black and white movies and I'd be like, oh, this is going to be so boring. And that first time you see it as a kid and the door opens and Oz are like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be a fun movie. <laughs> it's 19 and sorry it's 19 minutes and 30 seconds into it that it happens yeah i remember looking at the dvd going like hmm that's pretty late the transition is later than i remember they made you wait for that big reveal they did uh-huh uh, it's funny as a kid i remember thinking oh this is the movie they invented color on it's odd that they didn't go back and make the rest of it in color too yeah <laughs> this is my three-year-old logic of course. <laughs> it's like why didn't they just make all of it in color <laughs> Clearly, the technology was invented while the middle of this movie was. I feel like they really did a good job of maximizing the effect and the impact with choosing really bright colors. You know, they switched what were supposed to be silver shoes to ruby slippers, and they, you know, Dorothy has red hair. I don't know if that's a, in the book or not. Judy Garland um, does not normally have red hair, but that's a good point. Um they you know the yellow brick road is so vibrant Mm -hmm. even the 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 plants in oz the the water Mm -hmm. is incredibly it's like too blue Mm -hmm. Um, the emerald yeah Did you notice, for the first time I watched this, I noticed, like, they told her to follow the yellow brick road and swirls in and meets in Munchkin Land, but there's also a red brick road. And I gotta ask myself, nobody said where the red brick road goes to? I think, I think in the book they might address that, but I don't, I was gonna read the book before we did the podcast and I ran out of time. I was gonna reread other it. things that could <laughs> other things that could have been mentioned in the movie if you had just cut the the king if I were a king <laughs> <Yes>. song. <laughs> Please <laughs> let's get back in time. If you can get that three minutes back, you start getting frustrated with all the other things they could do with that. Three so, minutes. as someone who has not read the book, Lisa, do you remember there being a horse of a different color in the book? Mm, I think there or was there might have been. I don't I don't remember off the top of my head. I kind of wondered is that some creative way they were trying to think of to utilize color probably um, or if it really was in the book like that i think one of the things that i remember from the book that's not in the movie that i think would have been interesting is in the the south part of oz there is a whole so like munchkin land there's a whole area where everyone's made of china and they're all little china dolls and stuff Mm, that's cool yeah i i think that would have been an interesting thing to see in the movie but it's not in there. <laughs> so there's a lot of amazing costume work in this. And it's interesting. They have the designer, Adrian, one name only, like Madonna. His name's Adrian. And he was like massively influential to movies of all sorts at this era. He is a chameleon in that he could do period pieces, fantasy pieces, as well as fashionable, sleek, modern looks. And he actually is so influential that he largely dictates both male and female fashions for the 1940s and if you know fashion these trends come back over and over again that was a big part of this and if you look at all the wild munchkin outfits they have the way the the flying monkeys are and when they get to the emerald city you really start to appreciate just what a creative mind went into doing this again in 1939 
Uh, one thing I found out about the costumes when I was doing research was that the Cowardly Lions costume is made out of real lions. Take that, PETA. Yeah, that made me actually really sad. But it, And it weighs like 60 pounds. And one thing that they found when they were making the costume is that lion's coats vary so much in color. They were going to make several different costumes for the lion, but they couldn't because all of the lion furs did not match up. So they only had one lion costume. And because it was so heavy and so hot, he would sweat so much. And they had to get like this industrial dryer to try to dry it out overnight. But it was still like damp and and gross every yeah, day. That, that probably didn't smell good. No, that must have been miserable <laughs> for him. I, I I don't think I'd want to be the people responsible for drying it at oh, the end of the day. No. And this didn't the documentary say that sometimes the sets with all the lights and everything were over oh, yeah. hundred degrees. Yeah, this this is before air conditioning. They did say because they used so much lighting mm-hmm. on this uh, set, particularly in certain scenes where they had rear projection and other parts. But we'll get to that later. But uh, the set could be over 100 degrees there in Culver City, California, and there were blackouts sometimes because they were sucking so much power into the studio for the lighting for this particular effort. So, yeah, I don't want to wear a lion's yeah. coat you in a 100 degree give it room. to him for toughing that out because that sounds miserable. You know what, though? I'd rather take that than to be applied aluminum powder uh-huh. and, like, get my entire lungs lined with aluminum powder and go to the hospital and then get cut out of one of the greatest movies of all time. So I'll still take the lion's <laughs> uh, bad wardrobe uh hardships over the 10 man's hardships other fun uh i shouldn't say fun but interesting parts of the costumes that we're talking about both the lion and the scarecrow have facial you could say prosthetics put on Mm -hmm. them or makeup and this is foam latex which this is an early form of that and uh jack dawn was the first makeup artist to use this technique and he also would put this on their faces so to give the uh, whiskers as well as the burlap kind of look to the scarecrow. Well, the actor who played the scarecrow was actually left with long-lasting permanent lines around his mouth and chin from his mask because every day they would glue this on his face and peel it off. And uh, he had over a year of, uh, you know, indentions on his face. From doing this so don't think the scarecrow got off that easy either another uh, actress that had trouble with the makeup margaret hamilton's green makeup was uh, copper based and that created toxicity in her so she, it's what we what we were watching said that she had to eat a liquid diet on shoot days because she was so ill from the makeup hmm. wow that's horrible yeah. i uh i remember reading when there's something that happens when she first disappears from Munchkinland. There's a kind of a fireball and they did one take and went fine. They do a second take and she actually catches on fire and she's very badly burned because she had that green makeup on. They had to, they had to get it off. And the only way to get it off was to pour alcohol on her fresh burns. So it was pretty horrific. That sounds awful. Yeah, I, I read about this as well. And unfortunately, the elevator malfunction, sorry, the elevator was fine. So she goes down mm-hmm. into the ground. There's a poof of red smoke that comes up in Munchkinland. Uh, if you're trying to picture the scene, the witch disappears in this puff of smoke. So what she's doing is she's going down an elevator. 
and the elevator's actually working fine, but there's a pyrotechnics guy who's supposed to unleash the fire that like, goes up. It's a lot of fire, too. It's, mm-hmm. it's much taller than the height of uh, Margaret Hamilton in her hat. Unfortunately, she's down to about a shoulder height on the elevator, and the pyrotechnics guy hits the fire too soon. And that's when the fire goes off, and it lights her hat and her like uh, cape and stuff like that on fire, and she doesn't necessarily even know it at first. But then, mm-hmm. then the burns come in, and she unfortunately sustains third degree burns on her hands, and uh, she gets second degree burns on her back and face. And so, this was a hard one for her too. So, pretty much everybody shed blood, sweat, tears, burns, and I, this 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 movie. Hurt. It's not a glamorous movie to have been part of. Yeah. Not really. Not Mm-mm. if you were there. They asked Ray Bulger, the scarecrow, at one point, like, was this a really fun movie to work on? Because they do look like they're having fun. And down. He's like, he's like, no. It was really hard work. And other accounts say that they got up at 4 a.m. in the morning to show up to get the makeup on, and they didn't leave until 7 p.m. at night, and they were doing this for, you know, 20 weeks. I mean, mm-hmm. whew. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a picnic. So, but it's worth it, right? Absolutely. And one last thing about Margaret Hamilton's burning incident. She would no longer want to do the, I guess, broomstick billow smoke uh, because rightfully so she had been burned once. And Mm -hmm. so they had a stand-in performer, like a lookalike, named Betty Danko for the scene. And instead, that had a problem too. And uh, it experienced a problem in doing that. Uh, The smoke mechanism failed and Danko's was severely injured uh, as well with the smoke mechanism, like, burning her. So, um, 1939 movie sets, dangerous place to be. Lisa, is there any special effects that you want to call out? Yeah, I have the tornado scene in my notes Perfect. as something that was incredible and still looks incredible today. So, it's my understanding they did this with a muslin cloth wrapped around mechanical rods and on a gantry system so that they could move it back and forth. And what's really interesting about that is they get the spinning fabric and the rods are moving in such angles that you get and get a conical shape that kind of has that hourglass figure. So it gets bigger at the bottom and then bigger at the top, but they could change the angle of those rods in such a way so that it really looked like this thing was moving. And again, they shot it on a miniature and a model in the foreground. They then had to actually show in real actors in front of this to make it look you know, not like a model, because it's not a model. It doesn't actually show to me like a model. I'm, anyway. No, it looks real. So the, the way they did this was they had a very small set, and Dorothy is standing in front of it, and there's a screen behind them. This is before blue screen. And so what they do is they take another movie projector, and they project the film footage of the model of the tornado onto that screen, And they have to use really, really bright lights because there's a projector coming from behind them to illuminate Dorothy in the foreground. And so they're blowing around dust, leaves, and all the stuff in the foreground from the tornado. Meanwhile, this thing's really going on in the background with a real projection. So it's a real projected image behind her. It's a really neat trick. Again, blue screen later eliminates the need to do this, but it's pretty cool to see the resourceful way that they had to do this in 1939. Some other interesting special effects Do you want to talk about uh, how they did the transition to color? The scene with Dorothy opens the door from the house, the farmhouse, and she's in Oz. That was a really interesting scene to hear them talk about how they did it because they had to use a double for Dorothy. So she had a lookalike who had on, you know, a version 
an un- uncolored version of her outfit, start to open the door, and then she moves out of the camera view. The double gives Toto to Dorothy, J- Judy Garland, and Judy Garland walks through the door. In a blue dress. In, in the, yeah, in the blue dress that we s- normally see. So Again, it was kind of an interesting way for them to figure out how to make that transition look convincing. I'm just so amazed at the low-tech ways that they did this that look so good. They basically took a black and white room with a black and white gray dress and made it work in the foreground. And then they just walked into a color room and shot the whole thing in color. It's amazing. Lisa, were there any movie magic moments that to you was like, man, that looks really good for 1939? Again, I was just so impressed with the tornado scene because I wasn't expecting much when I, you know, watching it now, I was thinking that will probably look really bad to me now that I know more about making movies but i came away from being like that might have been one of my favorite parts was just watching that and knowing they don't have cgi they don't have any of these things that people use now and it doesn't look dated to me the way that all of these cgi movies like i can tell when a movie was made by its cgi yeah yeah the 90s cgi is pretty rough Oh, man. Yeah, it is. <laughs> no matter how good the CGI is, it, it seems like it, it's, it's always so dated. I love, I love practical effects, and I think they hold up so well. So I, I think that's my favorite part of the movie. One scene that scared me thoroughly as a kid was the incoming of the flying monkeys. And, mm. you know, when we returned to that, I was really shocked how good it looks. These guys are coming in off of ro- wires and ropes, and they mm-hmm. they transition to running on the ground so smoothly. It's very fluid, and again, it's kind of maybe through stage-like practices. But I mean, uh, the approach of those monkeys coming in, a, it's really scary, mm-hmm. and b, it looks really good even even now. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that really impacts, I think, the look of the whole Oz experience is the painted backgrounds they did that by masking out the portion of the camera that they wanted to have actually as the painted backdrop to to have to see the process of how they did that and see the effect they did it so well and i think that kind of seamless transition between these beautiful artistic backgrounds and the actual film footage i think for me stylistically it helps to reinforce the dreamlike quality of the movie so i actually whereas maybe that was a rudimentary effect um and something that we wouldn't do today somehow that feels right for this movie Mm -hmm. yeah i agree i actually thought about the same thing when i was watching the movie you know oz doesn't necessarily look realistic when she first walks in they almost look plasticky and kind of fake but it's not bad especially when you realize at the end that it's all a dream the fact that it has this artificiality to it actually enhances the experience yeah that's a good point definitely lisa do you want to share any look for this moments i do so when they're in the poppy field and the wicked witch you know enchants it and they and Dorothy and Toto and the lion fall asleep and Glinda comes and she's, you know, sets the snow on them. The snow that falls on them is actually pure asbestos. Mm, That's not good for you. I'm pretty sure. Oh no. And actually that wasn't the only place where they used asbestos in the making of the movie. So 
Apparently, the Wicked Witch's broom was also asbestos, and part of the Scarecrow's costume was asbestos. So that probably was another thing that contributed to the actor's, you know, health issues afterwards. Yeah. That's a lot of asbestos in that poppy field. <laughs> they really snowed it down. I Yeah, when I read that and then <laughs> watched that scene again, I was horrified. So who wants to be an actor in 1939 now? After we've talked about all the wardrobe and the malfunctions Wait. and dumping asbestos on You're you? saying the broom that they caught on fire was asbestos? They were actually it probably, burning it. it. Probably, <laughs> I mean, wouldn't it have been worse if it wasn't asbestos? Because isn't asbestos a fire-like retardant? That's why they used it. I cannot say at this point why. It just it, 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 Once you know it is asbestos and you know what asbestos is now, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's one of those just like you cringe. But, they, you know, I guess they didn't know. So Yeah. Hey, someday somebody is going to say that about us. I don't know what it'll be, but they'll say that about <laughs> us. Yeah. Like, you drank what out of a plastic bottle? <laughs> you just drank it and put it on your lips? <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, we'll find out. We'll find out we did something stupid someday. Mary, do you have any look for this moments? Yeah, um, a fun little bit um, in one of the documentaries. Um, Frank Morgan, um, as he's playing uh, Professor Marvel, is wearing a jacket that was given to him by MGM's wardrobe department. He found in the lining of that jacket a monogram of L. Frank Baum. And it just kind of shows how small our world really is. Um, L. Frank Baum's family did confirm later that, yes, they did, in fact, donate that jacket to a, a Goodwill or something, and MGM wardrobe department actually you know collected a bunch of stuff from there to put into their wardrobe department and then ultimately ended up being professor marvel's jacket in the movie so i just think that's a fun little tidbit that would have been a big surprise when he noticed that on the inside of his jacket so they did did they realize that it was l frank bombs or they just picked up this random jacket um the latter I think they picked up a random jacket just thinking that it looked like it would work for the character. Yeah. Wow, that that's really cool. <laughs> if anybody has ever heard the myth of the hanging midget suicide uh, on a noose, mm-hmm. uh, in the Tin Man scene, they go off and they sing in the forest. In the distance, there's believed that some people felt like there's a figure of a one of the munchkins hanging who committed suicide on set they didn't realize it they recorded it and it got in the film well in reality there's large birds in the forest you can see them more clearly in other scenes but this is a stork stretching its wings um, and this is one of the large birds in the woods however it has not got a lot of projection on it or i should say the lighting did not pick it up very well and so later on they retouched it and it's less confusing they even in order to avoid controversy in later versions of the film cut it out and then making matters worse though they there's a fake version of this online where people show a more human form than it was ever there which makes it look more convincing that it was there so the suicide myth continues mary is there any other ones that you want to do 
Yeah, I there's a fun little moment uh, when Dorothy meets the Cowardly Lion and he's threatening, you know, he's chasing Toto and she slaps him. And in that moment, when you look close, you can kind of see how she's about to giggle. She's about to break in that moment. And I think that's just, I, I almost kind of like it because I think it shows um, how much fun they actually were having on set. There's a sad story that goes with that, though. The That very scene where she does giggle. Unfortunately, uh, Victor Fleming is cajoling her afterwards, saying to be serious, and he slaps her in the face. And again, 1939 practices. Not uh, not a fun... Do you want to make a movie in 1939? Think, think twice. Um, <laughs> so uh, he felt bad about it and was beating himself up about it, and she ends up uh, going and... He said, I wish somebody would punch me in the nose. And so she hears that and then comes over and gives him a kiss on the nose. And uh, as if to say everything's okay. Different but, uh, times. It wouldn't have felt okay uh, no. for really someone like, to have slapped you. Yeah, I don't really like reading that story. So yeah. um, that's unfortunate. I, I, like you said, a fun moment. Uh, you know, and it should have just been a fun moment. With a 16-year-old actor having a good time and maybe you need to cut and do it again. I don't know. Bad on you, Victor Fleming. Uh, I have one last one. It is... This was one of the first 25 films that was inaugurated into the National Film Library in 1989. So this is uh, part of our general society and culture. It, uh, it shows where we are in film, art, in general. I want to ask at this point, how does this movie affect you today? And how did it affect you before, Lisa? You know, I was struck by when I was watching it for the podcast that there are so many things that have in this movie that have influenced other movies and it influenced our culture. There's so many different quotes that people are still quoting to this day. You know, there's no place like home. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. All these different things that we're still talking about today. And this movie was so long ago. And, and it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I, I didn't realize that until I rewatched the movie, how, how big of an effect it had on our culture. I think growing up as a kid, it, you know, this movie had a huge effect on me because we watched it. We literally watched it every time it was on TV because it was one of my mother's favorite movies. And we would also watch all the, the, the making of documentaries on TV. And it was one of those first movies that I remember being nerding out on because, you know, we didn't have DVDs back then. I'm dating myself. It was all VHSs and we didn't have like special features and stuff that we could watch. We didn't really have the internet. So this was one of the only movies that I knew a lot of different details on behind the scenes. It's interesting that you said that because the film grows in reputation, largely through TV appearances. Uh, the mm -hmm. movie did its normal run in the theater, but it's actually through TV specials. It was a holiday tradition that CBS would put this on one time a year, and you better use the bathroom and be in position. There's no DVR, mm -hmm. there's no VCR, there's no DVD player. Uh, the whole family would get around and watch The Wizard of Oz, or maybe one of other, you know, a few select movies, and it, it's made into a classic by virtue of that. It was a it was very influential for a generation much older than ours, but I mean that's part of what made it such an enduring movie. Mm -hmm. Mary, how does this movie affect you? I think as a kid, it just had this you know amazing sense of wonder, um, the creativity, the vibrant scenes, and it I think it, it it touches the heart of a child in in 
such a profound way. I think I see it a little differently now. But, I, you know, it, it, it definitely, I still kind of feel those same things I felt when I was a kid. Um, I remember actually trying to learn how to skip, like, Dorothy would skip down the yellow brick road. Not sure I ever quite mastered that. It's it's a little bit tricky. Um, but I think that kind of I still am reminded of that magic I felt when I was a kid watching it. Yeah. And for me, I, for whatever reason, this time watching it, it just reminds me of reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I actually saw The Wizard of Oz the first time. But for some reason, the magical experience that The Lion, uh, uh, The Wizard of Oz gave me somehow made my reading of the Narnia Chronicles better in a way mm-hmm. that magical feeling that Wizard of Oz gives you through film. When I read those books, they were actually enhanced by having already seen Wizard of Oz because that part of that magic rubbed off on me when I read those. It's interesting that you say that because I actually was thinking about Narnia when we when I was watching the movie and thinking about the movie for for the podcast, I especially when I learned uh, when I you know remembered that in the book, The Wizard of Oz, it's not a dream and everything actually happens, which you know in the line the witch in the wardrobe, it's it's the same thing. you know, they come back to the real world. but everything that happened in Narnia actually happened. So it, it, it's interesting that in the movie version of Wizard of Oz, you know, they they took that tack. And it also made me sad that there's not a great version, movie version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. No, there really isn't. Maybe, no. we'll, maybe they'll try again in another 15 years or so, so. But are you ready for some superlatives, Lisa? I am. You want to start us off by you with your MVP? Yeah, so my MVP is Judy Garland. She's just so vital in in the role of Dorothy and her, you know, her singing and her vocals are so amazing. Uh, she she's definitely my MVP. That's a really good pick. Mary, who's your MVP? Yeah, I'm I'm also going to go with Judy Garland. I don't think this film would have been the same without her. It's a clean sweep for me. I'm going Judy Garland as well. Can't imagine anybody else doing the role either. I'm with you. Best Supporting Actor, Lisa. I went with Ray Bolger as the Scarecrow. I was really struck this time watching the movie how much I enjoy the Scarecrow, and I think he's my favorite of, you know, the three characters. I, I And his dancing is just so amazing. I could, I could, I just kept rewinding it and rewatching that. That's why she'll miss him most of all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Mary. Yeah, I'm also going to go with Ray Bolger. Uh, I had the same reaction watching this again. I think he's definitely my favorite of the three friends. And uh, his physicality in this movie is just so impressive. Mm-hmm. I really loved Ray Bolger in this and I wanted to give it to him. But I cannot deny the fact that Margaret Hamilton is the perfect Wicked Witch of the West. She, to me, is one of the greatest villains on screen. Uh, her cackle, her look on that, uh, it's amazing. And it's interesting, too, Judy Garland uh, particularly mentioned that it was so hard to act with uh, Margaret Hamilton because she's actually a very sweet, nice lady who has a good sense of humor. You know, to think of her as being this evil, threatening person was hard for her. Interesting, just to show you that she's not really a witch. So, Hidden Gem, Lisa. 
I'm going with Frank Morgan, as I was struck by all the different characters he played, as we talked about before, and and how differently he played all of those different characters. Well, button my buttons. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Um, I'm going to go with, and Russell's going to laugh at this, I'm going to go with Terry the dog. Mm-hmm. I thought that she <laughs> was on point i felt that she felt very authentic in the way she interacted with the cast and i think her handlers definitely deserve some credit for being able to make uh, i mean everybody knows who toto is it's true that's a lasting long lasting character we're always going to remember um and i think that the dog um added a lot to the movie she loves her dog as you as you pointed out earlier toto's in almost every scene it's true <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Uh, I'm going to go with the uh, little people who play the munchkins. Uh, there's tons of them, and it was interesting to see in the documentary for so many of them to come together and to be around each other. It was truly a magical experience for them. The movie tried to find like 200 of them. They came a little short of that. There are a couple of them that are kids in the background, and they do some tricks to make a couple of people look smaller. But generally speaking, they they really found lots of little people and they put them in a film and uh they did so in a positive light and so Mm -hmm. credit for them on that so lisa if you had to recast somebody who would it be and who would you put in their place i think i would recast the cowardly lion (laughs) because he's definitely my least favorite of the movie um i wasn't really sure who to go with because i don't i'm not familiar with a lot of actors of the time period the only person i could think of was uh jimmy stewart but i don't know if he can sing I don't, I don't know if I could sing it. <laughs> but I love him. I would put him in every movie if I could. I can't see him being cowardly, though. I don't know. He's always yeah. so stoic in all of his yeah. roles. I don't know. It's a good question. I had a hard time for this, too. I try and find people of the era to replace, and that, that makes this harder. I sometimes let people off when we go this old and say, if you had to put somebody from today in it, who would you put in today? But uh, Mary, if you had to recast somebody, who would you be? I would recast uh, Auntie M. I just mm-hmm. felt like... She's mean. Okay, you want to go back home? Why? <laughs> She's I not real nice. I wonder that, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would have i don't know and maybe it's just because of the um little little piece about wizard of oz you were talking about that angela lansbury uh narrated uh someone more like angela lansbury she might have been uh, young for the role at the time but someone with her kind of qualities um i might have been more attached to the antium character you know you say that but i watched her in the manchurian candidate which is done in like in the 40s it's true it's later but i mean she never looked young i think she was born that way (laughs) <laughs> maybe i would have cast angela yes. lansbury and maybe it would be it's okay like, if she was it's a like murder younger. she wrote in the 40s <laughs> always i could definitely see angela lansbury in that role and i think you would understand more why she wants to go back to kansas because i never understood that as a kid i'm like you're in this amazing technicolor fantasy world and you're having fun why 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 leave that for me, I'm actually going to recast Glenda. Uh, it's a little tough here. I honestly would prefer to just put a second witch in here, to be honest with you. So mm-hmm. in a way, uh, I, I thought Carol Lombard would be a fun person to put in this. Um, I think that uh, maybe she comes off as being younger, more graceful, and I kind of has that allure of like, oh, the, you know, pretty witch or whatever. Not threatening. 
So that's where I was at with that one. But so maybe that makes a whole lot of sense if you were to actually put the two witches in like there should have been. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Honestly, my preference would be to cast her in addition to, not instead of. So that's uh, a cop out, I know. Uh, best, <laughs> best shot. What is your best cinematic moment, Lisa? I'm going to go back to the tornado scene because it's just so impressive. It is. It's really cool, especially when you know how they did it. Mm-hmm. Mary, what is your best shot? Um, I also uh, really love that tornado scene watching it this time around, um, but I did want to give a nod to a scene in the Emerald City in this magnificent hallway that leads up to the wizard. The mm-hmm. hallway was so intimidating. I remember being intimidated by that traveling down that hallway with them as a little kid the forced perspective on the arches the the fear and in, in all of them as they're walking down the seemingly endless corridor um i know that's a, a, a not as impactful for some as but it, that was one scene that impacted me as a kid that i that sticks out in my mind it is ominous for my best shot i'm gonna go with the transition to color when Dorothy opens the door and mm-hmm. she goes from black and white into the world of Oz. That's just a magical moment. It's an iconic moment for the movie. And seeing that little window of color in an otherwise black and white foreground is pretty cool. I want to give a small nod to seeing the Emerald City as they're exiting the edge of the forest and entering the field of poppies, but the Emerald City's in the distance. It's just a really cool shot using that matte painting technique that Mary mentioned earlier. What's your best scene of the movie, Lisa? I think it's the first scene in Oz with the munchkins coming out and uh, and, and Glinda coming down. Uh, I love that scene. It's one of the most fun scenes in the movie for me and definitely the one I liked the most as a kid. It's a good choice. That's a really good one. Mary? I actually picked the Over the Rainbow musical number. I feel like that, I don't think I would have picked that until I rewatched it. But I think that in my mind, that's an important moment for me as a viewer because it makes me um, understand Dorothy and how she's she wants more um, and how her her you know she wants to be over the rainbow and I think that sets up the whole movie. That's why it's important. Yeah. To the movie. So I really, yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm going with. That's a great one. Uh, my best scene is going to be Lisa's best shot. I love the tornado. Uh, I like it when it picks up the house. And uh, it goes into an interesting montage. You look out the window and you see these mm-hmm. people in the distance. You, I love the transition from the witch on the bike to the being, sorry, the, the witch of a person on a bicycle to being a literal witch on a broom. I love the whole sequence that leads up to before that and the tornado. I'm also a fan of the tornado scene. So it's better than the movie Twister. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, change one thing. Lisa. Uh, cowardly Lion. I, he, I, I just don't number. like him. Aww. Yeah, that number. We, we talked about it before, and I'm still with you, and that's also going to be my change one thing. I can think of so many other things I'd rather do with this movie yes. than that. So uh, without belaboring the point, Mary, what is your change one thing? I uh, really always loved that deleted scene of the scarecrow. I remember it being on one mm-hmm. of our VHS um, at the end of the movie. I feel like that could be inserted back in and for everyone to view, you know, for generations to come, I feel like that there it doesn't drag. There's so mm-hmm. much craft in that scene 
for to appreciate. Yeah, my change one thing is to actually add a scene back in. Lisa, what's your best quote? So this is one that actually blew past me as a kid, but when I was watching it this time, really stuck out as hilarious. So Dorothy says, how can you talk if you haven't got a brain? And the scarecrow replies, I don't know, but some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? That is really good. I'm actually, that's a really good pick. That's not necessarily one of the obvious ones, but that is a really good pick. Yeah, yeah. Mary, best quote. Um... Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. That's the classic. Yeah. I'm going to go with another one of the classics of that. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> that scared me. It did its job. <laughs> she's really mean, and she's not only going to get her, she's also going to get the dog, too. So, yeah. I mean, that's, like, that's another level of villain. It comes time to rate this movie. On a five-star scale, Lisa, what would you give The Wizard of Oz? I think i give it five stars. It... It's an iconic movie for a reason. And like I said before, there are so many things in the movie that we still quote today and there are still references today. I I was just thinking the other day about people always joke when it's raining or you you get wet. Oh, well, you're not going to melt. And that's from The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. It's true. It's true. If they're witches, they will, though. So, (laughs) Mary... Uh, I, I agree with Lisa. I think this is a five-star movie because I think it holds up now and I think it's going to hold up in another 100 years. I agree. This is a five-star movie. It's like, uh, you know, a whole other civilization ahead. Like, this is our mythology. This is like our Zeus and Athena. And, you know, when you go back and look at it, they're really going to look at Wizard of Oz, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings or whatever. Like, this is, this is that level of, like, it is... It's a representation of where we were in society. So it's pretty cool. And I'm going to give it a five stars too. And it's one of the highest. uh... But we got to do another great movie next week. Mary, do you want to help me pick one out? Sure. I'd love to help you. Option one. We're going to go back to the 80s here, by the way. So option one, Spaceballs from 1987. (laughs) A rogue star pilot and his trusty sidekick come to the rescue of a princess and save the galaxy from a ruthless race of beings known as the Spaceballs. It's been a long time since I've seen that. Yeah. (laughs) Option two, War Games from 1983. A young man finds a back door into a military central computer, which reality is confused with gameplay. Uh, It's possibly starting World War III. And uh, option three, The Wizard, starring Fred Savage from The Wonder Years. A 1989 movie, a boy and his brother run away from home and hitch cross-country to help a girl they, they meet and complete the ultimate video game champion. I'm oh, sorry, to compete in the ultimate video game championship. Hmm, those do sound like fun movies. Um, I, think, uh, I think I remember War Games being a fun movie, so it might be nice to revisit that. It has been a long time. I think it's it's going to be a fun one to return to. Let's go. War Games it is. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining the show for to, for the first time. You did were, you were really fun. I really enjoyed talking about The Wizard of Oz with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. And Mary, thank you yeah. for coming and filling in for John and Brian. Well, uh, thanks for uh, doing such a fun movie. I'm glad I got to come on for this one. 
And to all of the lords, ladies, and nice the Retro Room Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. What did you think about The Wizard of Oz? Subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those, they're going to help other people find the show and help the show grow. We'll be able to do this longer. Give us the like on Facebook. Email us at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com if you want to be on the show. As always, thank you all for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Mary? There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home.